Well, good evening, Kairos. I'll say, bless the Lord, if you'll say, oh, my soul, bless the Lord. Bless his holy name. All right. Welcome back to the attic for a night of worship and gathering in the presence of God's word with his people. And uh, I just wanted to let you know that um, we have resumed gathering. Uh, we want to be as safe as possible. We want to be in full submission to our local, state, and federal officials. And so uh, right now, if you're watching this, just know that we're doing Kairos Outdoors uh, at Brentwood Baptist Church on the lawn out front um, with social distancing and all the protocols in place. Uh, so if you weren't aware of that, if you leave now, you can make it for the doxology. It'd be great. But we wanted to make sure for those of you um, who are at risk or not yet comfortable um, for gathering in public worship spaces outside, uh, we still wanted to make sure that there was a digital opportunity uh, for you to connect. So again, we're in our series, Disruptive Transformation. Uh, last week, my good friend and pastor Jason Cook brought us a strong message about what to do about worry. It was so good and I had so much fun diving into the text with him as we decided to look, consider, and then seek that I wanted to hit really, really hard the last part of that about do not worry but seek first the kingdom of God. Because here's the deal, men and women, there's a lot to worry about out there still, isn't there? We're worried about our economy, we're worried about our environment, we're worried about our health, we're worried about job opportunities, we're worried about relationships, we're worried about events being canceled, we're worried about what the future is going to look like, we're worried about what school is going to look like, we're worried about who are we going to invite to our drive-by birthday party. There's a lot going on and a lot for us to be worried about. And it's almost as if when Jesus says, do not worry, what we do is we start to worry. And we're like, Jesus, that was great for your poor little peasants back in the day, but we've got big things to be worrying about. How in the world is this possible? And when we hear Jesus' admonition for us not to worry, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, some of us, um, by faith, will hear an incredible invitation for an opportunity for our freedom and flexibility to grow and flourish. And others of us will just be reduced to more fear and more fretting, wondering how in the world can God ever conquer our worry. So the good news is uh, I love the fact that we want to preach the Bible clearly and give you a chance to respond. Jesus doesn't candy coat hardship, suffering, difficulty, and insecurity in this life. And the question for us as Christ followers is this. How can we live securely in the midst of daily difficulties? How? How are we going to live securely in the midst of daily difficulties? The answer Jesus gives us is two-part, but the first part is simply this. The resolute rejection of worry. I believe that Jesus is tired of seeing his followers sick and tired about worrying. And he wants to invite them into a place of God's providence and protection so that they can live safely and securely, smack dab in the center of the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
And that's exactly what our text is going to talk about tonight. So I want to pick it up in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 31. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 31. Jesus, would you go before us in this text and make a way? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? And we say the words that ravish your heart. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. I'm a little bit worried right now that I said that out of order, but um, please forgive me. Matthew chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 31. So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I'll say the word of the Lord if you'll say thanks be to God. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. The resolute rejection of worry is how we as Christ followers live securely in the midst of daily difficulties. Now, a couple observations on this text. First of all, um, I don't know if Jesus uh, is a master teacher here, but I don't know if he's ever been a parent of a young child. The second you tell them not to do something, they do it. I'm telling my kids a lot of times, hey, calm down. Whenever I said calm down to my kids, they never calm down. And I feel like a, a, a little... Um, like toddler throwing a temper tantrum when Jesus tells me not to worry and I want to go, it's exactly what I'm doing. You telling me not to do it is not helping. It's just making me worry more because now I'm worried that I'm worrying. First of all, um, I find it interesting that uh, a lot of times the perception of Christianity is it's just this fuddy-duddy morality-based system of holier-than-thous who just identify themselves by the things that they don't do, right? And the argument could be that most of the Ten Commandments are prohibitive, right? Don't steal, don't murder, don't lie, don't cheat on your spouse. It's like, oh my gosh, just cramping my style, Jesus. But I found it really uh, interesting that the way to give you the maximum amount of freedom is by saying what not to do rather than telling you what to do at times. So, for instance, man, it, we got incredible road systems. Um, we can hop on the interstate and we can be in a different state in, in no time flat. Someone decided to actually cut down, pave, paint lines, and put up guardrails and say, this is the pathway to freedom. You got a lot of choices along the way. You can make progress in your destination. But here's the deal. Don't go past this guardrail. Don't go into oncoming traffic. Don't go the wrong way. Wait, we don't get on the interstate and go, oh my gosh, what a legalistic state we live in that just tells us to drive one way and on the road. Do not worry is setting you up for an incredible amount of freedom and responsibility and possibility in the kingdom of God. He's telling you what is going to sabotage your best intentions before they ever get off the ground, and that's worry. I think it's when we take our, worry for me is when we take our God-given ability as image bearers of God 
to imagine a future where we are more alive, more His, and more fully ourselves in His kingdom and underneath His reign, and we turn around and what we do instead is imagine worst case possible scenarios. We imagine a future full of fear and failure and frustration. And Jesus is speaking into this moment, and he says, don't worry. And then you got to consider Jesus' original audience, right? This is his famous Sermon on the Mount. They're up on the hillside. It seems kind of idealistic. He does an object lesson. He's like, hey, while you guys are sitting down and you're, you're, you seem to be in a relaxed state, I just want to remind you, hey, don't worry. Check out those flowers. Check out that grass. Look at those birds. I imagine that was probably for all the ADD kids in the audience who were already looking at those things. And Jesus intuitively is picking up on object illustrations in his sermon. But he's talking to poor peasants. They're in a world where the average lifespan is 30 to 35 years old. War, disease, famine, malnutrition, bad sanitation are all basic realities of life. And in that moment, Jesus says, hey, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, what you're going to drink. He's not even talking uh, uh, about, like, optional things. He's talking about basic necessities of life. And he calls them to worry-free living, even in the midst of daily difficulties, by the resolute rejection of worry. Now, that should empower us, but it, if you're like me... It shames you a little bit, doesn't it? I'm not worried about what I'm going to eat. I'm worried about eating too much. I'm not worried if I'm going to have something to wear. I'm worried about what am I actually going to wear. And for us as a modern civilized society with a surplus of goods, more for us is we're worried about our choices, not about our necessities. The Huffington Post uh, picked up on this recently in an article where it cited an academic survey where they took a bunch of participants over a prolonged period of time and they asked them to write out their worries. Here's what the survey found. 85% of the worries that people had about the future never came true. You know what's really interesting? Of the 15%, of the fact that some of those worries actually came true, 80% of those people discovered, one, they could face the difficulty, or two, they learned a lesson in their life that was invaluable and worth the difficulty that they faced. Bottom line, 97% of our worrying never comes true. We are constantly spending today's grace solving tomorrow's problems that don't even yet exist. And Jesus knew this wasn't freedom. It would bind us in slavery. It's as if the French philosopher who once said, I need to resolutely reject worry in my life by saying this way, my life has been full of tragic misfortune, most of which has never come true. <laughs> Doesn't that describe most of us? All this time and energy. Now, sure, we need to consider the cost of discipleship. Sure, we need to plan and pray into the future. But how many of us are spending today's grace on tomorrow's problems that have not even yet come?
Now, I know there's some pushback in this text, and I know we need to put this in the context of all the biblical narrative and biblical wisdom. And there's some extreme interpretations out there of this text that we need to resolutely reject. Uh, First of all, if you make plans for the future, it's a lack of faith, right? Let tomorrow worry about itself. I, I get that, but as you practically play that out, we are stewards in God's kingdom. And he's given us the ability to exercise our faith responsibly. So take, for instance, Joseph, who receives divine revelation from God that Egypt is going into a season of famine. What does he do? He begins to stockpile food for seven years of famine as an exercise of faith, wisdom, and stewardship. Another extreme is, oh man, if you have material possessions, you you can't follow Jesus. You need to deny all your desires and you need to live some semi-nomadic, monastic lifestyle. I don't think that's, that's true either. Jesus in this text does not deny your needs and neither should you. Another one is, well, man, if you're wealthy like most of us in the West and you have a surplus of goods, well, then you can't, you're not really a disciple of Jesus. That's an extreme interpretation of this text. Um, the difficulty is it doesn't take into account Abraham, Job, um, Joseph of Arimathea, Lydia, all of whom were people of wealth and means who were loyal disciples of Jesus Christ. Here's what this verse is not promising. It is not promised that you will not die of hunger, dehydration, or exposure to the elements. It is promising you this, that God will give you everything you need to prepare you for the life to come. Jesus, Jesus was thirsty on the cross and couldn't get a drink, right? And even Jesus, at first blush, it appears, was worried about the hardship, suffering, and death he was going to face on the cross. Father, if there's any other way, please make it happen. What is he doing? He's considering the future and he's casting his cares upon his father. But then immediately comes the resolution, resolute rejection of worry. Not my will, but yours be done. Instead of worrying about what I'm about to face, I am going to resolutely reject worry and passionately pursue the kingdom of God and his righteousness regardless of the cost. And if the cost is too high, you will give me grace in the moment to pay it. So I, I wonder if we could consider it this way. I want to give you kind of a visual as we're going throughout our week how to passionately pursue the kingdom of God, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But first, that requires the resolute rejection of worry. So let me get you a visual aid here. Watch, I'm worried about how this transition is going to happen. Watch this. Oh, yeah! That's what happens when you got good editing and a sovereign God. He provides. So when it comes to how we face Uh, How we live securely in the midst of daily difficulties is the resolute rejection of worry, right? But here's the two extremes we usually get trapped in, right? Satan doesn't care what ditch you're in. He just wants you in one ditch or the other. On one side, panic, right? (gasps) Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? 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 And we start turning into this frenetic 
overactivity, right? Where it takes our breath away. We're legitimately hyperventilating in our faith. And that's not how Jesus intended for us to live. Do not worry. But sometimes we overcorrect. And on the other side, instead of panicking, we just decide to pout. Which is, hey, this is inactivity. And instead of having my breath taken away, I'm going to hold my breath. Not doing nothing, Jesus. Life is not the way it turned out. Not the way I wanted it to turn out, right? I should not be here in my finances. I did definitely shouldn't be here in my relationships. I can't believe my kids and my grandkids are struggling with this. And I can't believe my dog just peed in the back attic. And I don't know how I'm going to clean it up. <gasps> not doing anything. We panic or we pout. There's overactivity or there's inactivity. It takes our breath away or we decide just to hold our breath. But I think in this text, Jesus gives us a different way to live. Instead of panicking or pouting, he's inviting us to partner with him. Which leads to proactive steps in the kingdom of God where we breathe in and out underneath his protection and his provision. When God's uh, covenant with Abraham, the beginning of this whole thing, to bless him so he can be a blessing to all the families in the earth, Abraham said about God, you are my shield and my reward. What was he saying? If I move forward into this kingdom and family you want to create, you are my protection and you are my provision. I will breathe in your presence and out your provision and protection. I will be proactive. I have a role to play. But man, I need to praise you for who you are and remember all the ways that you've been faithful. I need to pray intensely into today and the concerns that I have. And I want to make sure that I have a plan. Not wrong with having a plan. Just as long as your plan is an expression of your praise and your prayer. Because you are a partner, a steward in the kingdom of God. And when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things will be added unto you. You don't have to panic or pout about those things. You can trust that your heavenly father knows your needs and he's actively seeking to provide for them. But when you go about meeting your needs first instead of God's needs, you're going to get upside down. You will have wrong thinking, which leads to wrong priorities. Jesus in this text wants us to have right thinking about who he is, how he's going to protect and provide for us that can lead to right priorities in our life. Queen Elizabeth I was uh, putting together a delegation for some merchants to go uh, to the New World. And she called upon a small business owner who had a certain skill set that she needed and summoned her him in her court. She said, I need you to go to the New World and I need you to represent my interests and I need you uh, to start this business venture here. He was a small business owner and it, it was struggling and Apparently, he didn't get a stimulus check in the mail. He said, Queen, I, I, I thank you so much, but I, 
if I leave and go about your business, my business is going to fail here. And she said, young man, you mind my business and I'll mind yours. What was she saying in that statement? She's the queen, the monarch, with unlimited resources, power, and protection. And she's saying, if you put my priorities first, I will make your business my priority. You mind my business and I'll mind yours. And that is what the God of the universe is saying to us through this text. Seek first my kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. Amen? Good. So let's take 120 seconds. And I just want us to answer this question. What are you worried about? Name it. He, he, he knows them. You just need to trust them with it and get down, get honest. Usually there's a presenting circumstance and then there's actually a core issue that God's always after in your character. Your worries like breadcrumbs. It'll lead you to the house of the witch. So go find out where she is. Bring her out and tell her. This is the resolute rejection of worry. God, my Father, He's my protection and He's my provision. It's not uncommon for disciples and followers of Jesus to worry. Peter was worried, right? The, the rock that God, uh, Jesus built the church on, he was worried about the waves. He was worried about paying his taxes. He was worried about who's going to betray Jesus. He was worried about Jesus' plan for the kingdom that involved suffering and death. And he's like, ah, it's not a good plan. And after Jesus did all those things and was resurrected, I'm sure he was worried about how Jesus was going to deal with his failures. And then Peter writes in his book, Cast all your cares, your worries, and your anxieties upon God, for he cares for you. Second thing I want you to do, now cast that worry onto him. Give it over to Jesus and ask him, with his disruptive transformation to turn your worry into wonder. That fretting into freedom and that anxiety into a glorious anticipation about how the God of the universe, when you mind his business, he'll mind yours. Amen.